If you would this morning turn to John chapter 10 in your Bibles. John is in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You'll find John 10, and we're going to be looking at verses 16 through 21 this morning as we continue our series on Jesus as the Good Shepherd. Now let me share with you a little bit of history, maybe aesthetic history as we begin. One thing that you'll notice is if, if we were to go to the museum right now, and the curator had got together a, a special area for us so that we could see and, and contrast some art, is if you went to look at uh, paintings and sculpture and mosaics of the Good Shepherd from basically the 18th century and beyond, one of the things that you notice on this side of the wall, if you're walking through the museum and looking at all these, these works of art, is that Jesus is really good looking. Um, he's got long, flowy hair. He shampoos it quite often. It doesn't look like life for him as a good shepherd is very hard at all. He's got you know, some pretty nice muscles. He probably goes to Planet Fitness fairly frequently. And he's carrying the sheep like it's no big deal at all. The sheep itself looks pretty happy. You know, He's got some white wool and looking pretty good. He just wandered off a little bit. No big deal. But it looks like life is easy breezy for both Jesus and the sheep. And, you know, there's, there's blue skies in the background with sunshine, but what a pleasant scene. Now, if you go prior to the 18th century and you look on the other side of the wall and the curator walks us through the museum, you'll notice it's a stark contrast to the actual artwork that exists. On this side of the museum, as you're walking through at, at historic pieces of art, again, sculptures or paintings, mosaics, whatever it is, Jesus isn't looking so well. He's got cuts, he's got bruises, he's sweating, he's bleeding. I mean, he, he looks emaciated in some, he looks exhausted. The sheep itself almost looks like it's still fighting him, like, let go of me, right? But it's, it's all covered in, in dirt and mud and, and twigs and thorns and all kinds of things. And you just get this sense of it's often dark in the background, but you just get the sense that for Jesus to go, this, go get this sheep, it cost him something. There was pain involved. And even though the sheep still may be wrestling a little bit, there's, there's a, a sense of though it's, it's, it's dirty and it's exhausted and it's wandered really far, there's still this sense of it's just resting on his shoulders, glad that someone would come get him. And so my question this morning is, if, if you were walking through that museum with the curator and, and looking at the different sides of the aisle, on this side, again, it's the one where everything looks fine and wonderful. On this side, it's a totally different contrast. Which side would you find more, and I'll use the language of beautiful. Which side is more beautiful? And I use the language of beautiful because scholars will say that the same word that's used for good shepherd could just as accurately and adequately be interpreted as the beautiful shepherd. And so as we look at this text here this morning, as we continue this series about who is this good shepherd and, and why did he come, what does his mission consist of, we're going to see that this good shepherd has a beautiful mission. A beautiful mission. And in contrast to, I think, what so much of us experience of authority he possesses a beautiful authority. So let's see that beautiful mission and that beautiful authority as we stand together for God's word. 
John chapter 10, verses 16 through 21. 16 through 21. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay my life down, or I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, He has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, These are not the words of one who's oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? The reading of God's word, which he's given to you because he loves you and he wants you to know him. Let's pray. Jesus, even this morning we ask that you would open the eyes of the blind. You can do that. You've shown that. Holy Spirit, open our eyes this morning to the glory of Christ and the beauty of his mission. And the beauty of his authority is he's a good shepherd who lays his life down for his sheep. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, as we're walking through this museum that's been so wonderfully curated for us, we're going to choose to look at this side, the walls, with a more accurate and adequate view of who Jesus is and what it cost him on his mission to get his sheep. But we want to look at a beautiful mission this morning. Uh, one of the things I want us to note first as we look at it is it's a beautiful mission because it's an expansive mission. You can notice this right off the bat in verse 16. He says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. Now keep in mind the broader context of what Jesus is saying here in this text. The broader context is chapter 9. Uh, Jesus was in a synagogue. He heals a blind man and Jesus and the blind man are kicked out of this synagogue. It's there for the Jewish people, for Israelites. And he's talking to Pharisees at this moment. And just like God had long ago promised in the Old Testament that he was going to bless Abraham and bless Israel in order to be a blessing to the nations, Gentiles, Jesus says, I have other Gentile sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. And so one of the things that, that we looked back on um, before was it's a beautiful mission because it's, it's exclusive. And by that we said it's, it's only in Christ alone that we're reconciled back to God. And Jesus says he is the door of the sheep, that if we enter through him, we will have salvation and find pasture and go in and out. And even though it's exclusive in Christ alone, the beauty of it is that it's so incredibly expansive. He says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. I, I love to think about this in the Old Testament. Just imagine this. It's late at night. There's no light pollution. God calls Abraham out of his tent and tells him to look at the stars. And basically says, as many stars as there are, so many will my people be. And I can guarantee you Abraham lost count. 
And then he says, think about the sand on the seashore. So will be the number of my people that I call to myself from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language. That's the picture that you get from the book of Revelation. It's not only a group of people in the Middle East that God goes after and calls his special, unique people. It's from within them that the Savior comes, and through him, God's mission to the world continues to every tribe, every tongue, every nation, and every language. And Jesus here says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold, and I am going to go get them. That's why it's a beautiful mission. He doesn't simply say, hey sheep, come to me. There is that invitation, but he's also a good shepherd because he goes to them to bring them back home to the Father. It's a beautiful mission because it's an expansive mission. It's also a beautiful mission because his sovereignty guarantees its success. You'll notice that Jesus says this. He says, I must bring them. There's a a compulsion of, of love in his heart saying, this is something I have to do, I want to do, because I love my sheep, the ones whom the Father has given to me. And you'll notice that Jesus does not say in verse 16, and I hope they'll listen to my voice. And maybe if I yell loud enough or speak gently enough, they will listen to my voice and come to me. No, Jesus uses the language of beautiful certainty. They will listen to my voice. Jesus speaks later on in John chapter 10 and says things very similar in the rest of John's gospel where he says, all those whom the Father has given to me will come to me. So there's sovereignty And Jesus says, they will listen to my voice. And here's the universal offer of mercy. Jesus says, I'm the door. If anyone comes to me, they will be saved. So his mercy offers it and his mission to anyone and everyone. His sovereignty guarantees it. They will listen to his voice. One of my favorite examples of that in Scripture is in Acts. There's a woman by the name of Lydia. Uh, Paul is praying where he needs to go. The Spirit leads him to go to Philippi. So he's going to Philippi, and he starts praying, Lord, where do you want me to go? Who do you want me to talk to? And and so he sees a group of people on this side of town, and he goes over there, and he starts to proclaim the gospel. You see how he is offering God's mercy to them? But then it says that there was this businesswoman by the name of Lydia. And it says this, it says, God opened her heart to know what Paul said was true or to understand what Paul said. God's mercy offered it. His sovereignty guarantees the success of this mission. It's a beautiful mission because it's expansive, because His sovereignty guarantees it, and also because it brings about unity. Look at this. It says this in verse 16 towards the end. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. Jews, Gentiles, people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language in the midst of all of their cultural differences, all of the different differences that they have of their background, 
their experiences, whatever it is, when they come to Christ, the one thing that unifies them, that brings them together in the midst of all of their differences, and this was a huge reason why others came to Christ in the early church, because Christ unified them. He was the one reality that could draw all kinds of different people to himself. This is the theme of Jesus in John chapter 17. He says, Father, I pray that they all would be one, just as you and I are one. It's, it's a theme of Paul. Even in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says that God took this one group and this other group and he made them one in Christ. Jesus longs for his flock not only to come from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language, but also to experience unity. And it's unity because they all have the same shepherd. Now listen, even amongst our own churches, around the globe, there's differences. There's cultural differences. There's economic differences. There's differences of musical preferences. And even in the body of Christ, there are theological differences. Now, some of you know this. Maybe some of you don't keep track of this. I do because I I love our denomination, Presbyterian Church of America. Two giants of the faith died this week. Um, And I would actually say three. One died on Sunday, Stephen Smallman. uh, Really gave his heart to discipleship ministry, gospel-centered discipleship. Um, Harry Reeder, if some of you know that name, uh, tragically died in a car wreck this week in Birmingham. You talk about giants of the faith. Uh, and Harry Reader, in many ways is a, is a hero of mine because of his influence and his commitment to gospel centrality. Lord takes him home. Tim Keller. Some of you heard that he was in the hospital. He's not feeling well. Um, he tells his family, I just want to go home. And he says, I long to be with Jesus. And the next day, Jesus takes him home. Now here's one of the beautiful things I love about Harry Reader and Tim Keller. They were so centralized on the gospel, but they had theological differences. As a pastor, it was so interesting to watch them both. And boy, they would battle it out. Um, In public forums, they would sometimes have debates and things like that. But one of the things I came to find out was they were also part of the same pastoral group that would get together not to debate and destroy each other or anything else like that, but to say, I desperately need Jesus. Will you help point me to him? And Harry Reader and Tim Keller loved each other amidst significant differences, and yet having the commonality of being saved by Christ alone, by grace alone, to God's glory alone, as shown through Scripture alone, they knew they both had the same shepherd, and belong to the same flock. It was beautiful to watch them engage. It's sad to see them go, but I rejoice that they have received their inheritance in full now. How does this apply to us, this beautiful mission? A mission that's beautiful because it's expansive, because God's sovereignty guarantees it. It brings about this unparalleled unity. Let me just say this. This mission is so massive that God uses the entire globe to paint this canvas, to paint this masterpiece. Out of every tribe, tongue, nation, and language, this mission is that big, and so big will be the masterpiece of God's grace. 
And I wonder if oftentimes if we are working on a masterpiece, it's about the size of an apartment or half an acre of land. Maybe if you're lucky in Oconee, it's like five. But we tend to make the mission of our lives, I do this, the size of my life. And begin to make my mission to make sure my needs are met and these things are happening and I advance here and I succeed here and this is good and this is wonderful for me. And Jesus says, if you love the good shepherd, love my mission. And make your heart and your life as as big as my mission is. Well, how do you do that? How do you join him in this? I, I love it how in the book of Acts, Luke starts the book of Acts and he says, O Theophilus, I wrote to you in my first book about all the things Jesus began to do. And then the entire book of Acts are Paul and other people going to the Jews and to Gentiles around the world to tell the gospel. And so this Luke is saying, that's what Jesus began to do, but when he ascended, Jesus continues to pursue his flock from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language through his people. He does it, and he does it through his people. So you can do this. You can go on a mission trip. See if God's calling you to that. You can, you can give to missions or to a missionary. I loved how um, Oren, you guys know Oren, who's been playing the drums for us, has been raising funds, and he has just been amazed He had this huge sum that he had to raise. Our denomination said, hey, if you want to go to Japan for this trip, you need to raise this much. He's like, how is this going to happen? Guess what? People in this church and people who loved him said, we are for you. We are for that mission. Here you go. It was beautiful to watch that. I mean, Oren's just stunned. That's one of the ways that you can give your life to mission as well. Or... We were in Lexington last night to celebrate the 50th birthday of one of our friends and some different things they have going on in their life. And um, This reminded me of Miss Lottie. Lottie was about 94 years old, and I would go visit Miss Lottie. And she'd always get up to the door, and she had such bad arthritis. She was bent over. I mean, her hands were just gnarled together. And in between her fingers, she always had a piece of paper. And she'd come open the door and say, Come on in. And she would go sit down and she'd put her paper on the the table right beside her chair that she always sat in. And you know what it was? It was a list of missionaries. It was a list of her neighbors that lived around her in her apartment complex. That's how she made her life about God's mission. She couldn't go. My, she didn't have much. So there wasn't much for her to give. But what she could give was her prayer to join Jesus in this mission. Maybe for some of you, it's grilling. You love grilling. The summer's coming. You can invite neighbors over, friends over, co-workers over. And you can know that Jesus' longing is that His mission is expansive. He loves to include others. His sovereignty guarantees it. So you can offer mercy and the full confidence that God will work out His sovereign plan and know that God loves to bring His people, no matter how different they are, together under Him as the one shepherd. Or invite someone out to lunch that you know from work or school or something like that. But we're always concerned, how are they going to respond if I do this? Well, you get a little glimpse of this here in this text. Even though you may be on this beautiful mission, look just briefly at how they respond. There's a division among the Jews. 
Verse 20, many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? They didn't only say that to Jesus. They might say that to you. You're crazy. Notice, it's not just um, condemnation and insanity that they accuse Jesus of and those on his mission. But also there could be confusion and curiosity. Notice again in verse 21. Others said, these are not the words of one who's oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? So they're, they're kind of confused. They don't know exactly what's going on, but they're curious. So it's like, could I, I want to watch a little bit more. I'm going to follow and see what happens. That's the way someone could respond. They could call you crazy. That might happen. Or they could say, it's not really making sense, but I'm willing to hear more. Or, not condemnation and insanity or confusion and curiosity, but they might listen, listen affectionately. Again, what Jesus says in verse 16, I must bring them also, they will listen to my voice. I remember one time in college, I was sharing the gospel with someone, and it was probably the worst thing I've ever, it was just, hey, um, I'd love to tell you about Jesus. And they're like, yeah, I don't know about that. I'm like, well, he's He's great. And, uh, uh, and I'm like shaking, and they can see my hands shaking. And I'm like, and, and the Bible talks about the, the wages of sin is, um, uh, and a friend was by me, he's like, death, it's death. I'm like, it's death. And, and Jesus, he died on a cross for us because he loves us so much. And then finally I was like, I, I give up. I'm sorry for wasting your time. And he, all of a sudden he goes, where do you go to church? I said, well, I go, I go to Westminster, Prez down the road. What time is the service? at 10.30. Can you pick me up at my dorm? And he came to Christ. And, and not, that was an initial door. It was other friends who faithfully loved him. But it was like, oh, I felt like I was just failing. But he listened affectionately, even through the weakness and imperfection of God's people. It is a beautiful mission. And God calls you to expand your life to the size of his mission not just the size of your life. It's not just a beautiful mission, it's also a beautiful authority. Oh, how I wish we could spend more time on this. I think all of you not have only seen it on TV, but you've probably experienced in some measure in your own life of authority being abused, of authority leading to some kind of disappointment, of authority being used selfishly, brutally, abusively, and Jesus in this text says, well, let me show you what true authority looks like. Beautiful authority is beautiful because in Christ, he shows that real authority, true authority, is sacrificial. Jesus continues to say in verse 17, I lay my life down. And he continues to say later on in verse 18, I lay it down of my own accord. Another time in verse 18, I have authority to lay it down. Multiple times in this one section, I lay my life down. It's sacrificial, not selfish. And you can see in verse 18, he says, no one takes it from me. That's one of the things that you see. When you look in John's gospel, they come to arrest Jesus. Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. And it says a legion of soldiers came to arrest him. That would be up to, 
and the Roman army, 6,000 soldiers. It likely wasn't that big, but it was probably a ton of soldiers because they knew and have heard some of the things that Jesus has done in his miracles. We better be ready. And when they ask Jesus a question, are you the one that's going around and doing all these things? And all Jesus says is, I am. Do you know what happens? Every soldier falls flat on their face. Because his word is that powerful. And it's as if Jesus in that moment, through his actions, is saying, you don't take your, my life from me. I lay it down. Because his authority is beautiful. Because it's sacrificial. He will lay his life down. No one takes it from him. It's beautiful authority not only because it's sacrificial, but it's personal. You know, one of the things in authority is that the higher position you get, if there's a task that you don't want to do, what do you do? Delegate it. If there's a task that's getting too hard and you don't like it, what do you do? Delegate it. If you go to the Garden of Gethsemane and just watch with Jesus where he knows that the wrath of God and justice of God is coming the next day, that he will suffer on our behalf because of our sin. He has authority. He could say, yeah, John, um, you do this. Hey, Peter, come on, man. You know that cross is calling your name. Nope. Over and over, you'll notice the language of I and me Jesus uses here in this text. I lay my life down that I might take it again. 18, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it again. I'm going to do this. In the ancient Near East, the language of shepherd was not only used of shepherds who were out with actual sheep, but the language of shepherd was used of kings in high authority, in the highest authority. And Jesus says, I'm not just a king, I'm the king of kings. I lay my life down for the sheep. It's beautiful because it's sacrificial, it's personal, and it's a beautiful authority because it's faithful. Notice in verse 17, he says, for this reason... The Father loves me because I lay my life down that I may take it up again. And he keeps on talking about the sacrifice that he's going to give. And then in verse 18, towards the end, he says this, this charge, this command I've received from my Father. And it's as if the Father knows what he's asked the Son. Out of love, the Father has said, Son, will you go down and die for sinners whom I love and you love? And the Son is saying, yes. And the Gospel of John says that Jesus loved His own even to the very end. And it's as if the Father is saying, Jesus, I love you so much. You're my Son, and you show to the world that, that I am faithful to my promises even at the cost of my own beloved Son. And the reason the, the Father loves the Son is not only because He's faithful to do what the Father has charged Him with, but He's faithful to reveal to the world what the Father is like. John chapter 1, verse 18, No one's ever seen the Father, but the Son has made Him known. 
So as Jesus lays down his life for the sheep, he's saying, this is the kind of love your heavenly Father has for you. That he would give his own son. It's beautiful authority because it's sacrificial, it's personal, and it's faithful. Let me end with this. This beautiful passage. You're going to the museum again. You're going to look at some beautiful artwork, okay? Some of you have heard me say this before, but at the Louvre Museum, they get a chuckle out of us Americans. We don't really appreciate art that much. So they started to do studies about how often Americans would sit by a work of art or stand in front of a piece of art. You know what the average was? Six seconds. I mean, you're seeing some of the most priceless, valuable, beautiful works of art. And the average American stands in front of it and goes, nice. Next. Awesome. Next. Whoa. Ah, not my taste. Next. Whatever it is. And John is inviting you through his gospel you know when you go to museums, there's, there's little, a lot of times, in the nice museums, there's benches that you can sit on right in front of a masterpiece. One of the wonderful things that the Holy Spirit does in the Gospel of John is reveal the glory of the Son. And it's as if he's saying, hey, come over here. I know it's summertime. I know you're busy. I know you're distracted. I know you're probably really stressed out. But would you sit on this bench? Would you look at this masterpiece? Would you look at the beauty of this mission? And would you, would you sit and stare longer than six seconds? Take six hours. Take six days, six weeks if you need. But just take a moment and sit and stare at this masterpiece. Because I can guarantee you there is nothing in the world that is more beautiful or valuable and is all about a Savior who loves his sheep and laid down his life for them. It's his mission and it's how he uses his authority. Let's pray. Oh, Father, help us this morning to take up that invitation and sit on that bench and stare at the glory of the Son whose mission is so expansive, whose success is guaranteed because you are so exhaustively sovereign and you long for, want for us to experience that unity. Help us see, Jesus, the beauty of your sacrificial authority, your personal authority, and your faithful authority. Help us sit and stare, Holy Spirit, at our beautiful Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.